from Austin, and welcome to episode 106 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Monday morning. It's January 14th, 2019. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. We have guests. <laughs> We're not alone. We're not alone. Our, well, I mean, we are alone. Our shoddy practices are going to be exposed. Um, totally. <laughs> uh, no, we are, um, we are really fortunate to actually have two guests um, in our hallowed uh, National Security Law Podcast studios. Right where the magic happens this morning. So Michelle Parody, um, who is um, civilian defense counsel in the Military Commission's Defense Organization and lecturer in law at Columbia Law School. Welcome. Thank Hello, you. Michelle. Um, and Captain Brian Miser, U.S. Navy, um, learned counsel, right, for the moment on the Al Nashiri case and chief appellate defense counsel of the Air Force. Good morning, guys. Um, Good morning. Brian, Glad to have you all here. Brian, I think Brian's role is mostly going to be sort of laughing at us for the next hour and so as he <laughs> as he happily sort of relishes in the Kansas City Chiefs' uh, dominating victory this weekend. We'll have to talk about that in the, the uh, frivolity segment, some so, playoff so, commentary. But, but I think we're going to harass Michelle for a little while. Let's, let's make that the main focus. Ooh, the main focus. Um, harassing <laughs> Michelle. So, something that D.C. Circuit judges seem to, to relish in. They do. And it's we'll like, soon it's do like football. Every, every fall, we go in front of the D.C. Circuit. <laughs> Although, it's changed, I guess, so, so, does that make next week a playoff game? I would, I would hope so. Um, <laughs> I think we may get into the finals. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Michelle, Michelle's actually, Michelle and Brian are here because we are actually mooting them um, for next week's big DC Circuit argument in Inre Al Nashiri. If my math is right, this is Inre Al Nashiri five. Uh, yeah, it depends on how you count, but I'll take five. We're going to have to come up 17. with some other way of naming these yeah. things. Blue, the, you are Mr. <laughs> Mr. 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 Pink. Mr. Mr. Blue, <laughs> Mr. <laughs> um, yeah. So it, what? That's on the twenty second. Yeah, January twenty second. Um, it's being argued right after uh, Inre Spears, um, Inre also Spears. a Nashiri derivative military commission mandamus case. So. Interesting times for the military commissions. Indeed, in the in the sense of that Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. It is a curse. Well, this is this podcast wouldn't exist, <laughs> right, exactly. um, but for the interesting times in which we live. So, before we get to what the actual issues are before the DC Circuit next uh, what Tuesday, uh, which by the way, if you've been listening to this podcast, you already know, um, Michelle. We want to talk about you and how you got to a point where this is like. What, your ninth, tenth DC Circuit argument in a military commission case? It's adding up. I think I get a free one after. Uh, <laughs> after <laughs> well, I mean, by fr- you might want to be careful there. Like, <laughs> on bonk could be considered free. That's true, right. yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in some point. respects. Um, so, so how did you get from, you know, sort of being a law student, graduate from law school, to now here you are arguing these high-profile Guantanamo cases and also, you know, teaching at Columbia, while you apparently also have two brand new beautiful twin baby daughters. Beautiful twins, yeah. Um, Congratulations. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. Um, we, the, we, are, we are all fathers of daughters. Yeah, welcome to the club. The best you? kind of fathers. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it, it was a very circuitous route, as the best routes often are. I um, was working on Wall Street for a bit, had a quarter-life crisis, as probably many of your law students will soon after they graduate from law school, and uh, went off, uh, got a PhD at Oxford in computational linguistics, uh, as you uh, totally, totally. That's as, as you do. That's totally what and, I thought you were going to say. And uh, and while I was doing that, I was doing uh, trying to do pro bono work on the side. And so you get yourself on listservs. And a Marine Corps major by the name of Dan Morey mm-hmm. sent a email to a listserv that I was part of, uh, asking if anyone wanted to help out in the Guantanamo case. And that was the case of David Hicks, the uh, the Australian, the Australian, the Johnny Walker Lind of Australia. Yeah. And um, so I ended up doing some work for him on that. Nothing, I would say, super remarkable. But when uh, Omar Khadr, 
later fired all of his lawyers right before his arraignment. Uh, Dan Morey called me and said, hey, do you want to be Omar Carter's lawyer? Um, and I you know, was just in graduate school, as you are, and that seemed like a fun way of running away with the circus uh, for a second time. And, what, uh, this, so was, this was 07, 08? This was in 07. Yeah. Uh, and so I did that. Uh, Dwight Sullivan, who was the chief defense counsel mm. at the time, uh, thought this crazy kid who was jumped into this case uh, had something to him, so he offered me a job. And uh, I've been in the military. Twelve years later? Twelve years later, and a few ulcers and two babies later, I am... uh I am still at it. Uh, I moved uh, pretty quickly into the appellate section. Uh, I took the Abulul case back when the Abulul case was just a glint in the D.C. Circuit's eye um, and uh, became the appellate lawyer on al-Nashiri uh, after a little while as well and have done, as you said, probably close to 10 arguments in the circuit in these cases. Um, and a bit of it's like Groundhog Day, if, I'm, <laughs> if I uh, am perfectly honest. I got you, babe. I mean, if I, so the, the, the last on Bonk argument in Albalool, I, I remember sort of sitting there thinking to myself, you know, why we're, this is the same freaking movie. I mean, right down to like judge it out. Is that just all you have to do is change ex post facto to Article Three, and even the questions were the same. Even the questions were the same. Yeah, he, and even the lawyers were the same. Ian Gershengorn yeah. uh, argued both on banks. Both right. in Ian was then the principal deputy SG. That's right. Yeah. So. so, so I mean, we talk a lot on this podcast about the military commissions from a sort of you know outsider, you know, lawyer perspective. I mean. What is it like to actually be in the middle of this? You know, you are an appellate lawyer principally. A lot of your work is filing briefs and arguing appeals. Um, how often are you going to Guantanamo, right? I mean, how often are you meeting with your clients? What, how, how, how awkward is that? Uh, it's always been awkward and has never gotten less. Um, I go to Guantanamo these days probably every couple months. I'm actually going the week after the argument to hang out with Al Balul for a little while. Um, yeah, it's a really kind of peculiar job. It has very much the as you know, I mean, as as you sort of guessed, this uh, Groundhog Day quality. So sometimes uh, even the really interesting stuff is remarkably tedious because you feel like you're making you and you are literally making the same argument over and over and over again, uh, and never actually getting to a definitive result one way or another. Um, but at the same time, it's probably the most interesting legal job you could do because uh, even the boring stuff is super interesting, even especially for law nerds uh, like yourselves. So, you know, it may not be Article 3 or the ex post facto clause in international law and the law of conspiracy. Um, but all of a sudden, you'll become an expert in the appointments clause, and you'll have a deep understanding of how the appointments clause work, which, which for me was a lot like that moment at the end of The Matrix when he <laughs> sees The Matrix for the first time. And I feel like Whoa. the appointments clause, right? <laughs> I know kung fu. Um, and as soon as you see the appointments clause, all of a sudden you understand. You can't, you can't unsee it. it. You see it everywhere. Uh, <laughs> And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating job in, in terms of the, the sort of the nerdy law stuff that we all enjoy. Um, but it's also a pretty hard job as well. I think it's physically quite demanding. Guantanamo is not, um, you know, I mean, it, it probably is not the place of your imagination. I know Steve's been there. I've been there um, a couple times. You've been there too. It's kind of like a really crappy suburb of Tampa. Um, <laughs> and with all of the, 
with uh, all of the downsides. With, with iguanas. Yeah, with iguanas. Right, so let, kind of paint yeah. a concrete picture. So like on a typical trip, trip, talk about like what your accommodations are like, what you're eating, what 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 is there with downtime to do? The order in which people sit on the plane. Sure. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I mean, you'll, you'll fly down. It takes about a day to get from point to point. Uh, Where do you t- leave from? How do you typically, get there? you leave from Andrews Air Force Base. Sometimes you'll fly out of Norfolk or Jacksonville uh, on special military flights. They're just always going. Uh, but the normal military commission's flight goes out from Andrews Air Force Base. Uh, you get there at the crack of dawn, like 5, maybe 6 in the morning if you're lucky and lazy. Um, <laughs> and then you get into Guantanamo probably about 2 in the afternoon is when you probably get on the ground. Then you take a ferry from the airport uh, to this dusty old airfield that's been repurposed into something that looks like a FEMA camp, um, which is basically FEMA trailers and these uh, sort of permanent tents. You, the Quonset huts. The Quonset huts, that's right, that are full of formaldehyde and the roofs peel off during hurricanes. Um, details. <laughs> subtle details. Um, well, it's, and that's sort of the interesting thing, I think, at a macro level about Guantanamo, which actually makes it, um, at all levels, really quite difficult, um, you know, the, from the legal to the logistical, is Guantanamo and the military commissions and all this other, everything surrounding it, was always intended to be temporary. Right, it was ne- no one building this stuff in two thousand two, two thousand three. Right, we're on the seventeenth anniversary actually, as of last Friday. Right. Um, no one in two thousand and two had you said Guantanamo is still going to be here seventeen years from now right. would have even believed it. Right, it would right. have seemed it would have seemed. Well, think like, about Camp X Ray in the in the cages. Right, exactly. You know, I mean, everything is is done in this sort of prefab temporary way. Um, with the understanding that it's only going to be needed for an, another couple of years. And that no, another couple of years has turned into a generation, um, which uh, I think you know, I mean, sort of describes the core problem of everything, that from the detention authority to the logistics of going down to the military commissions, where everything has been um, done in this sort of patch and tape approach um, to just get over this another, just get past this next hearing, just get past... Uh, another year, just get past this one argument in court, where no one has actually just sat down and tried to sort of take a bird's eye view of exactly where this thing is going, how this is going to close, uh, how the, what what we're actually even attempting to achieve this generation later. So, um, so they, uh, it makes it it makes it a very tough environment in which to work because you're always dealing with uncertainty and uh, a lack of long term planning and 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 also just a lack of expertise um, at all levels because one of the big issues, you know, one of the main sort of drivers of how the military has been organized since the 1970s is that no one really does a job in the military for more than a year or two. Three years is really long. Anything past that is career suicide. Um, <coughs> but see the chief prosecutor. But, but see, well, career but, suicide. Um, and you, so you have all of these people who invariably have no institutional memory and no real competence, and you have this system that's incredibly complex for a variety of reasons. And, and that you, even requires competence in some respects. And that requires competence. As, as I look at yeah. our, our resident learning council. Um, you know, Brian, Brian, who's sitting here bashfully, has been re- has returned to the military commissions three times. When he first came, he was a lieutenant in the Navy, and that's, he's that's, now that's, a that's, captain. That's when we met. When lieutenant I, Miser. Lieutenant Miser. Um, way back in the early early Hamdan. Uh, um, so, yeah. so, so, Michelle, I mean, you've been so you've been involved for twelve years. Yeah, um, right, I think going Brian, on twelve years. Going right, on 12, yeah. right, Brian and I think have been involved for upwards of what fifteen, sixteen. Yeah. Right. Um, what I mean, I mean, leaving aside, I think the obvious answer to what has surprised you the most, right, is how little has you know yeah, how yeah, little yeah. progress we made. But I mean, what do you see as the principal obstacles? 
right? So, so there are people who will, who will never accept the legitimacy of the commissions. There are people who will say, you know, the obstacle is having them in the first place. Mm. For those who think there is a, a universe, and I think Bobby and I are both, although maybe in different contexts, examples yeah. of this, where you can have military commissions, where military commissions can Certainly lawfully so. prosecute certain offenses, right? What, why are we here? Like, I mean, so you know, part of what you just said is, part of why we're here is because there's no expertise. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. What, what do you see as the other real contributing factors to why, you know, 17 years in or almost 12 years in, or in the case of like life under the 2009 Military Commissions Act, mm. I mean, we're coming up on a decade in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're still here. Yeah, I, so I think that, you know the lack of expertise is a problem because a lot of mistakes get made and then they get remade. Um, so you know you had a situation you may remember a couple years ago where the FBI attempted to flip uh, an investigator who was working on one of the defense teams in the 9/11 case. Um, why they did it, I don't know, but you, you know, I mean, it's it it obviously is going to cause a problem if the FBI attempts to enlist a member of the defense team. Uh, last week, uh, we found out it happened again. Uh, and I don't know if this has hit the news yet. It's it's not classified, so I can hey, talk we, about. Hey, we're breaking news on the podcast. But, wow. the, but the F- yeah, but the FBI attempted to to um, essentially uh, interview uh, a paralegal on one of the 9/11 defense teams, and that's guaranteed to be a mistake that's going to is being repeated, um, and is going to derail the military commission in the 9/11 case. You know, I mean, I'm going to guess for another at least six months. Well, of course, I mean, we did just have just just in a since we are supposed to be a podcast about some news, right? We had just last week Judge Perella rejecting the unlawful influence motion. That's right. Um, with regard yeah, to the yeah. firing of, of commuting authority versus mm-hmm. legal advisor right. Brown. Yeah. So, okay, so that's... So, so that's part of it. Well, let, think, let me ask a yeah, question yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah. So, so that doesn't sound necessarily, since you're talking about the FBI, this isn't endemic to the Milcom setting, right? I mean, you don't expect that kind of mistake to happen anywhere. Right. Is there something <laughs> about the Milcom setting that would cause a mistake like that to happen Whereas it wouldn't happen in an Article Three civilian court. Yeah, I think I think so, and I think there are two main drivers of that. One is in an Article Three court, you know who's in charge, and that's the judge. And the judge has both the power and the credibility to tell everyone else in the government to what's what. Um, and the military commission judges um, don't have that same power, just as a legal matter, but also don't have that same respect. And I think how that ends up working out in reality is that the military commissions become um, the dog's breakfast to federal agencies. I remember at one point I sat down just with a pen off the top of my head and tried to figure out all of the individual military commands, civilian agencies, governmental entities that in one way or another have a thumb in the pot of the military commissions or do things that affect the military commissions in one way or another. And I very quickly came up with about a dozen. Uh, right, FBI, CIA, J2, J, J6, the CLO, you, you know, the prosecution office, the defense office, the military trial judiciary, trial judiciary um, and, and many, many, many more, as that we, uh, the, certainly the, the detention facility in a lot of different ways. Um, and none of those uh, institutions um, ultimately have interests that are, ulti- that are aligned with the military commissions as a prosecutorial system. Uh, they have their own interests, right? The CIA has their own intelligence interests. Interest. FBI has some law enforcement interests, but it's primarily an intelligence operation, at least in terms of what they do in Guantanamo, although there's some law enforcement activity they do. <clears throat> Um, and so you have all these governmental agencies that don't actually have a stake in the military commissions succeeding um, and who are operating at cross purposes. And so they're going to interfere with each other. So maybe the FBI, again, I don't know enough about the facts even of the original FBI effort to flip a para- uh, some of the staff on one of the <clears throat> defense teams. 
maybe they had a good reason for the F- and from the FBI standpoint, I kind of assume they did, right, in terms of their own institutional interests. But they're entirely indifferent to how that's going to affect the military commissions. Um, and in, in part, it's because they're not afraid of the military commission judges. But I also just think that the military commissions have now gone on so long that there are very few people in the government for whom they are a genuine priority. I think Mark Martin's maybe one of the few people who, where the military commissions is their single singular priority. But I, I think that's a very very uh, unique point of view inside the government. So that suggests that one of the things that, that makes it different is, is in fact, the uh, not just the respect for and stature of an Article Three federal judge versus a military commission judge, but also the uh, stature and respect of, say, DOJ criminal division yep. versus, yeah, yeah. Uh, versus the operation, the collective set of operations that are conducting the prosecution function at, at Gitmo. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. The Southern and, District and I, of New just, York. And I'm you know, quick I mean, to yeah, add, yeah. and that's notwithstanding the the immense respect that Mark Martin himself uh, carries with him and the prestige he carried with him into this office. I mean, he is a he's a deeply impressive figure, and of course, he's he's a friend of mine. So I'm going to say nice things about him. Sure, yeah. I realize I got a bias, but, uh, but I think no, and I'm happy to say I nice think everyone. Yeah. I think that's a widely held view. Sure, I don't think it's not a widely held view, and I think if there was anyone who could have um, sort of set the ship straight. Uh, in the military commission system, Mark Martins had the resume and stature to do that right. and couldn't, um, despite an incredibly long inv- career investment, right? He's worked on the military commissions longer than any other um, military sort of job he's ever had. And even him, with all of his stature, competence, and expertise, hasn't has, has basically presided over the system getting worse, not better. And I, and I don't lay that at his feet. He's made mistakes, and I'm not going to, you know, we, we can talk about those if you want. But I actually don't even blame him for the dysfunction in the military commissions. I think it's ultimately a, a, many, I think it's ultimately a product of many of the structural things I talked about. Um, and particularly, you know, federal agencies that just have no interest in having the military commissions even work. Um, you know, I think the Central Intelligence Agency, if you a- honestly ask them, do they actually want to see the 9-11 uh, defendants prosecuted in the military commissions or any other form, or would you rather just have them held indefinitely incommunicado? I don't, I don't think it would be a hard call. Well, there's the rub, right? So when, when you point to the interagency, uh, the, the differences in equities to be advanced across agencies, a lot of the stuff wouldn't change if you had these guys in civilian federal criminal court, the CIA's interests are going to be what they are. They're not going to be necessarily, first and foremost, to get these guys uh, into a conviction, uh, whether it's a death penalty case or otherwise, mm. right? They're going to be interested in protecting sources and methods and protecting institutional equities and, and worrying about their forward-looking mission, not a not a retrospective one. That said, I think there probably are a lot of people at CIA. In fact, I'm quite quite certain, no firsthand, there's a lot of people at CIA that would really like justice to be done for the 9-11 commission, uh, the 9-11 plotters. And uh, the the fact that we're 17 years in mm. without getting terribly closer. I mean, I was just reading on Twitter some updates on the Heidi argument that's going on right now. Here we are, just you know, just another year. No reason to think this is going to end anytime soon. Well, and 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 we'll get to we'll get to why Michelle's in town, and and I mean, it's possible that we're we're marching backwards, not forwards. I think that's I think that's probably right, or maybe it's forwards. Like sometimes you well, have maybe to you have to go step, backwards to get forwards. to get forwards, right? But, to so, clarify people's minds. This is like how I drive. <laughs> I'm not going there. Um, so what's the way out? Of what specifically? Because there are a couple different problems, obviously, embedded in what we generally so, call so Guantanamo. So if, if you were a unit body, you know, one-person legislature, yeah. um, and, and, all, and your only marching orders were that you can't just end the commissions, um, mm. is there a way to fix them that would actually, uh, not, I mean, not, not, not sort of solve every problem, but that would at least 
you know, account for some of the structural problems you've identified and lots of other people have talked about where, you know, these little sort of friction points mm-hmm. are going to keep happening. Sure. I think so. You know, I mean, it, it, going to 30,000 feet and looking at it, what would what would simplify, for example, the 9-11 case? Because I'll talk about the 9-11 case because talking about Nishiri's case, obviously, right, is, right. It, I, I can't do that entirely. Um, but looking at the 9-11 case, um, you know, it's a hard call. It's one that that clearly upset uh, the former Attorney General Jeff Sessions uh, and led to all sorts of, you know, catastrophe last year. But make it non, make it not a death case. Um, you know, if you took the death penalty off the table, you'd simplify a whole lot of things, including the thing that the CIA cares the most about, which is uh, the torture, um, you know, and all the evidence uh, re- coming out of the RDI program and how these mitigation goes off the table. Because, yeah, you're inter- the, the right to mitigation evidence goes way down. Um, and also kind of, you know, I would say this the way Attorney General Holder said, and if you want to keep this in the military commissions, I think you could have done it in federal court, too. But. If you want to keep it in military commissions, um, just get rid of the statement evidence. You know, Attorney General Holder back when they were trying to move it to New York um, in a in a uh, policy move that was completely vindicated now by history, I think we can all say, um, you know, had the DOJ go back, the, I think it was the prosecutors in the Southern District and the Eastern District of Virginia together, to put together the case relying on no statement evidence whatsoever. And by, just to clarify for listeners, statement evidence, these are, these are statements that either the defendants themselves or other detainees made in custody. Correct, yes. Yeah. Um, solely based on evidence, not, in other words, tainted by torture right. or cruel and human degrading treatment or abuse. Or, or, or down the tree. Down the down the tree. You right. Know, you stipulate voluntariness the whole nine yards. Right. Yeah. It's non-randized custodial statement. Non-randized. Right. Exactly. And 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 they were able to do it. At least according to Attorney General Holder, that they had built they had built the case in in a way that they thought was airtight. And I think it was still a capital case at that point as well. Um, yeah. Now, obviously, so if you if you get rid of the statement evidence and you get rid of the death penalty, um, the importance of the torture evidence Wait, can goes I, can away. Can I go back to that yeah. real quick? Sure. Sure. Uh, if you can build the case entirely without custodial statements, then do you need to get rid of the death penalty? Um, if if yeah, the reason yeah. to get rid of the death penalty, obviously everything's easier if it's not a death case, but stipulate that they're willing to put up with a lot of effort and a lot of resourcing. In, in but that goes to the case in chief, right? I mean, the, the problem with the torture evidence is the defendants would still have more of a right in a capital case to put on evidence of mitigation, which the government couldn't control. But, yeah, but right. how much yeah, how much right. of a differential is that? But when you're facing life in prison versus I recognize capital punishment, yeah. everything's at its maximum. But they're still going to have some amount of mitigation evidence, right? Uh, yeah, right. But the uh, and that's but, where they're going to train their fire is going to be on. But the um, but the uh, entitlement to mitigation evidence is substantially less in a non-death case because um, in a capital case, mitigation is anything that a defendant thinks. You know, not even within the realm of reasonableness, but right, right. could plausibly um, convince uh, one juror one not to impose the death penalty. Right. Um, and that just opens up the universe of, of entitlement to evidence in a way that uh, that a non-death case just doesn't have as a matter of law. Uh, now, that may still be error, and you still may have problems. And I mean, these aren't, you know, I mean, had we not tortured these people, I think that, like, if you really want, if I'm the czar, <laughs> if, I, if I'm the czar of these cases, I would go, I would build a time machine. I would go back and say, don't torture these people. You're going to make this far more complicated in so many different axes sure. um, than you could possibly imagine. So come, um, come back to the statements. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, the rule, the military commission rules now in the statute uh, do pave the way for at least some amount of these statements to come in. Um, is it clear uh, that on eventual completion of all review that will ever take place, that there would be a constitutional objection that would get sustained to using these uh these statements, is there any pathway that could still result in um, 
many years down the road discovering that, oh, turns out you can't admit that because of you know, it, it, it's a confrontation issue. Turns out the Sixth Amendment Confrontation Clause does apply or it's some kind of voluntariness issue after all. Is that something that's still open? Yes, yes, and yes. Um, I think, you know, the way the Military Commission statute, even the reformed 2009 Military Commissions Act um, is is was both enacted and then implemented by the Manual for Military Commissions. Um, the only evidence that is clearly excludable is evidence taken under torture, right? So I am waterboarding you and say, you know, did you order the code red? And if you say yes, damn right I did. Right, while I'm while I'm waterboarding you, then that's excludable. But if I come back the next day and I give you a cup of tea and say, who ordered the code red? You know that is at least now there's a question about voluntariness, and there's so the question, only- I think I think in in fairness, that, you know, certainly if I were the presiding judge, I wouldn't I wouldn't read it so generously that uh, you know as long as it's not in the heat of the moment, it, everything goes. If well, you, well, if you were so, the presiding judge, things would be better. Yeah, sure. Well, th- no, and I think <laughs> I, I actually think that's a, I think that's actually a really good point is who is the presiding judge, but um, I would actually disagree with you because that's exactly what happened in the Omar Cotter case. Um, Patrick Parrish was confronted with evidence in the Omar Cotter case. Um, of the fact that Cotter was threatened with rape, was physically uh, tortured, and this is while he's recovering from pretty significant combat wounds as a 15-year-old boy, um, and simultaneously was making statements to interrogators. And Patrick Paris said, well, the reason, the, the defense has not persuaded me that the reason he gave these statements was the torture. Uh, instead, the reason could be his desire to want to come clean. Hey, who did he right? put the burden on? Uh, he ultimately put the burden on the defense, um, and he, I guess as a technical matter, it's on the prosecution, but he ultimately said the prosecution has come forward with evidence, it's now the ju- defense's job to rebut it, and that's under the 2009 Military Commission Act. That's not the bad old days Military Commission yeah. Act. And so I think, right, if you have judges who are going to, and, and let's actually just take a step back and, and, and look at what's required, right? When you have a system like we have now that says evidence can only be excluded if uh, an individual has either been tortured, subjected to cruel and human degrading treatment, or otherwise been had their will overborne. What you're basically demanding a, a military commission judge to do is to find that someone in the government, typically military personnel, have committed a crime, and that the only way to exclude a statement is by showing someone in the government has committed a crime. And just as a practical matter, just as a human, at the human sort of legal realism level, that's a very tough row to hoe for any any military judge to basically say, yes, these these privates, these sergeants, these members of agencies have committed crimes, and we're going to exclude evidence in a terrorism trial because of that. Mm. So speaking of judges, I do want to get to, to the, 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 <laughs> the, some, main event. the man of the hour. Is there an issue? <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 there's, there's, some, there's some stuff going on. Um, and, and so, I mean, we've talked before. I mean, I sort of, let, let me try to do a quick sort of scene setting, and then we can get to, to you know, how we got here and how we get out of this. Um, so we talked before about the concerns about whether Judge Bath, who had presided over Al Mashiri until, what, late last year? Uh, that's right, 2018. Right. Um, it's still weird to refer to 2018 as last year. <laughs> I'm still getting used to that. Um, so the, there's all this evidence that um, Carol Rosenberg obtained right through FOIA. Bless you, FOIA. Um, bless you, Carol. Bless you, Carol. Well, indeed. Um, about the sort of detailed communications Judge Bath had with Eeyore, the Executive Office of Immigration Review, as part of his effort to obtain successfully a job as an immigration judge. Bobby and I have, have had a bit of a knockdown drag out on just how damning that evidence is. Um, but be that as it may, um, this issue is now before the DC Circuit. Is, should, should Nishiri be entitled to a writ of mandamus to disqualify Judge Spath from having participated in those proceedings um, and to vacate 
his rulings that are at least apparently tainted. Is that a pretty good yeah, thousand foot? Yeah, yeah, and well, and actually one of the things that's also, it's not just Colonel Spath's rulings, although that is sort of, I think, the, the obvious first step in this. Um, but, there, you know, I think there's a pretty uh, reasonable case to be made, both as a matter of law, equity, and just common sense, that you have to just start from start fresh in the Al-Nashiri case, that it's gone on too long, it's become too tangled up. So and, we, talk, so we yeah. talked last week on the, on the podcast about the, the latest development, or the, the, at that point, the latest development, there's been one since, um, which was the, the fascinating um, revelation, I think, both by and to the Department of Justice, yeah. that Judge Schools, who uh, uh, Colonel Spad had picked as his successor, um, to preside over Alan Ashiri, um, has also accepted a job as an immigration judge. <laughs> That's correct. This, <laughs> That's seems, really this seems to be a career path. Yeah, so wait, is that like a thing where military judges kind of at the end of their career like kind of transition to immigration judge deal? Is, uh, is that some well-known career it's not, it, it's not completely unheard of. I know of at least a few others. But it's, I guess it's pretty, it's pretty common for, um, I think, senior judge advocates generally to get like Article One. Well, because, jobs, because these are folks like ALJs who are retired in like their like mid fifties age wise, right? Um, and yeah, so they yeah. might you got a pension. They have a pension. But you can but, also then get a well, job. well. Plus, I mean, so so what are their what's their skill set, right? What would they be qualified for? Yeah. These jobs are actually, you know, they're not lucrative, but they're they're certainly a good salary. Yeah, yeah. It's so a, it's a, the it's jobs a, fit, top it top end government salary. Um, yeah. And I mean, and I think there's some sense that there's both formal and informal preference for people with judicial experience. Uh, there is actually a yeah, veterans yeah. preference generally. There's veterans preference and having people going into immigration right. judgeships who actually have been judges. Right. That's so, a good thing. So, so I want to say I, I have absolutely no problem with any military judge who is at the end of their military service, right, seeking a further position of any kind. Mind in the federal government. The right. question is just how does that bear Dis- upon the disclosures and recusals? Yeah. yeah. All right. So the schools thing is interesting because it, to me it's it somewhat complicates the remedy question. Um, but then since we recorded, we also had the D.C. Circuit do something I wasn't expecting, which was grant your motion to supplement the record mm. right with all of these extra materials. I thought they were just going to you know defer that to the oral argument. Um, so now all this stuff is in. Mm. So, so for someone who hasn't been following this nook and cranny, like what do you, what to you is the big sort of takeaway about the the, the importance of next week's case and and what they should be looking for? So, um, yeah, the couple of questions embedded in there. I'll try and I'll try and be pithy as best I can. I'm not a good interviewer. Is uh, well, no, I think so. I think the you know at the macro level, the importance is um, this is a you know, I mean, it comes at I, I don't want to call it a turning point, but I think it's at least a it may. Pr- present a decision point uh, in the military commissions, because the D.C. Circuit especially has given um, the military commissions, you know, the widest possible berth, uh, despite a lot of evidence to the contrary. Uh, Last time we were in the D.C. Circuit in the Nishiri case was about three years ago, and the question was whether or not the court should abstain, um, whether a habeas court should abstain from cases involving military commission cases. And Judge Griffith, who's on this panel, um, wrote that decision, basically saying, look, the military commission's created by Congress are given the benefit of the doubt. And though there are problems, you know, you have pointed out some of the problems, um, you know, the, the, you are not saying that those problems are denying you necessarily a fair trial, and they don't undermine the broader framework that Congress created so that we have to at least defer to it. That was three years ago, and a lot's happened in the past three years. And I think... Um, what, can, can I say, yeah, yeah. And one of the things Griffith rejected, right? I mean, I, the, the listeners to this podcast know exactly how big a fan I am of that decision. Um, <laughs> and one of the arguments that Griffith rejected, right, was your argument that even optimistically, 
the soonest a post-conviction appeal would reach the D.C. Circuit was 2024. Right. Yeah. Um, and he says, there's no basis in the record to believe that. Um, and like my that response, looks like overly optimistic. No, no. And so my response <laughs> now is 2024. That's right. There's no basis in the record to think that 2024 is realistic. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, and, a certain, and at a certain point, you know, I mean, this is going to limp. How, how long is the court going to let this limp along? Um to, I think, the discredit of, you know, the American judicial system. You know, it's a niche part of the American judicial system, but it's a very prominent one. And so whether or not it's our own, you know, public, whether or not it's the president and his supporters, or whether or not it's people from around the world looking at the United States justice system, is Guantanamo, which is a very prominent, the military commissions, which is a very prominent part of that justice system, is that going to define the American justice system for another generation? Right. Um, do, you think, do you think that some of the judges in the civilian, the regular system, um, maybe actually are a little reluctant to touch this sort of tar baby-like thing precisely because it's often its niche. And they feel like right now all the all the, the negativity is attached to it, but it's, it's contrasted with us. But if we start really engaging and start to really intervene in meaningful ways in the MILCOM system, we kind of, we own it now, and now it's partly our problem as well. Well, the DC Circuit's going to own it eventually. And I think that's the ultimate, one of the things they're going to have to at least think about is right. It may not be 2024, maybe, maybe 2034, um, when these when this specific case gets back in front of the DC Circuit on a post-trial appeal from the military commissions. It'll be Judge um, Vladek's problem. By it's going to be Judge Vladek's problem, and Judge Chesney will be debating this uh, at oral argument. No way, I'll be um, in Texas. Um, but I'm the not back to DC. <laughs> but that, but I mean, it, you know, it's going to. It, is it going to be better or worse? Are they going to be dealing with a harder or simpler problem in 2034? Um, and, and, and isn't that part of, I mean, so to me, that's the gestalt of this case right now, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, especially for Judge Griffith. I mean, Judge Griffith, you know, for folks who don't know the D.C. Circuit that well, is a conservative George W. Bush appointee. But as the conservatives on the D.C. Circuit go, you know, I think one of the much more sort of um, sis- interested in the system, right? Like he's not oh, an yeah. ideologue. Well, didn't he dissent in Kiemba? He dissented in Kiemba too, mm-hmm. right? Um, I mean, he's, he has dissented from conservative decisions in the Guantanamo cases before. And he, and he joined uh, Judge Taylor and Ammer. Uh, right. Well, another way to look at that is maybe, the, maybe there's not one conservative position. No, oh, I, yeah. I'm not trying to say yeah. there is. My, yeah. point is. my point is that in Judge Griffith, you have someone who may not be necessarily worried about the plight of individual detainees, mm. but who is very interested in, systemic, in the system. Yeah, sure. No, he's right? very thoughtful. And so, and so, and so he'll, he'll, you know, he's someone who might look at this and say, what is the best thing we can do right now to get this train back on the rails? Do you think he's a little bit in the position? This reminds me of uh, in Bumenian uh, when Kennedy initially denied, cert. Do, denied yep. cert yep. And, and wanted to give the, uh, the Detainee Treatment Act you know the the whole like uh, right, the, the DTA and yep. CSRT review thing a chance and then got a little more information and then sort of revisited that is it possible Griffith is in sort of the same more extended uh, position where he's had three years to see how it works out and is now perhaps going to have a, a much less patient view. I well I hope so. I'm shocked. But I think he should, right? Because you right. know, I think what what has happened in the last three years to validate the faith right. that he had in the military commission's ability to clean up its own messes. Oh, the abatement, surely. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, 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 but, but I think you know. I mean, in addition to that, though, I think it, there is a sort of slap in the face to him about right. this right. because at the very moment he is writing this opinion, saying, you know, we're going to give the military commissions the benefit of the doubt. It's in front of a judge, and even if he makes mistakes, those mistakes will be correctable on appeal. There's nothing systemically. 
uh, unfair about the system, uh, Vance Bath is trading on right. his role in the Anashiri case as the judge in the Anashiri case to get this immigration judge job. To the point in a you know to the point of using a decision in our case as his writing sample. Um, and I think that's yeah, a, one else. Don't do that. Don't do that. Um, and I think that is such a disregard of the kind of you know f- you know faith and sort of esteem that we would expect any judge you know Article One, Article Three, you name it, even an immigration judge um, to have that Griffith sort of gave them the benefit of the doubt for that he should be mad. I don't know if he is, but I think he should be. Well, before we dig into because uh, it's there's this looming question of even if he does feel like hmm, well that. Turns out we, we shouldn't be so patient. There is this technical question about is mandamus really appropriate in these circumstances? It's obviously a central thing in the briefing. Um, well, well, actually, why don't, why don't we jump into that and, and, just, and talk about it directly? Um, you have uh, an argument from the government that all this may be true. We're, we're going to deny sort of tail into the briefing. No, we're going to contest this. But even if it were all true, this is really all premature. And mm. this is sort of a Marbury versus Madison. You're in the wrong court, buddy. Mm. Uh, take it up below. Uh, I, obviously, you disagree. But let's talk about that a little bit and unpack the issue there. Um, mandamus, normally you don't see it being being dealt with in this way. Mm. Um, why shouldn't it? Or what's, what's the best pithy explanation of why this shouldn't just go back to the trial level. Well, so I think I think two two basic reasons. I'll try and make them pithy. Um, the first is that the military commission has been given a chance to address this. We brought the very same facts. We didn't have the FOIA documents, which I think give a certain level of color and granularity to it. But the very same facts that he had been negotiating for this job for a certain period of time and got it. Uh, we gave all that to the CMCR, and they said we don't see a problem here. And that's the only reason we went to the D.C. Circuit in the first place. But that's the CMCR, though, which is another appellate level. Why not? Why not kick it back down to the trial? Well, that's where the that's where the case was at the time. So that we we the case was in abatement at the trial exactly. level. So we had to we had to go to the CMCR. But the government says, the right, okay, but that's over now. You know, it's a shame it's taken so long, but now you can go back and do it. Do it tomorrow. Sure. So I think, but I, then I think it gets to that what you know Steve called the gestalt of this case as well is what has this. Um, system done to earn that benefit of the tr- benefit of doubt that kind of trust um, with recusal issues dis- judicial conduct issues I think more to the point um, courts don't wait like there there's plenty of jurisprudence you know I mean even in the the DC circuit's decision in the Microsoft the famous Microsoft antitrust case um, you know even a whiff of judicial misconduct has to be stamped out at the earliest possible opportunity because we can't have the public's faith in the judicial system compromised for a day a week or certainly not a year certainly not two years however long the government anticipates this getting back to the DC circuit would take um, and so I think that that is probably the strongest sort of at, you know at, at the macro level at the sort of the gut level why you shouldn't send this back to the military commissions because um, we'd have to first go back to Colonel Schools uh, who has done the very same thing that Colonel Spath did so precisely who the military commission judge will even be is not yeah, when is schools out by the way uh, the summertime August I think what is, is, what is schools out Wait, you like that <laughs> schools out yeah. for, for this summer, this summer. <laughs> yeah, that's correct right. answer Alice Cooper um, so, so we don't even really know who the judge is going to even be at this that point. That could be a podcast. That, that's good. <laughs> when the school's out. Um, and so, or, or uh, episode one of six, school's out for the summer. <laughs> okay. All right. Anyways, we'll, we'll play with that's this. the important yeah, yeah. stuff. 
Um, so right, so I think I think that's the biggest problem you have is that you can't have, and you know, Guantanamo has not is not on the front page of newspapers every day anymore, as you certainly know. Certainly not like it was. No, like, there's you know, but it's on the front ago. page of this podcast. <laughs> it's on the front page. But I think that you know the amount of coverage that yeah. this specific issue has gotten has right. brought the public's attention back to the military commissions more than anything else in Indeed, a long time. I mean, more than more than the convening authority question, the nine eleven case, which I actually find a bit surprised. Like yeah, you know, I I may be partly responsible for that, but I find that a bit surprising. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I want to go back to a point you said, though, about about sort of the D.C. Circuit's relationship with the commissions, because I think mm-hmm. that's a really yeah. interesting and important structural question. Um, certainly anyone would agree with the characterization that the, that the D.C. Circuit has generally left the commissions alone. Um, I'm wondering, though, if we've seen some indication that their patience is running out already and that in as much as and and that there's there's reason beyond just the fact that like this case presents the question to think that there's we're reaching an inflection point. So in first of all in your case they granted a stay um, which is an unusual move for the DC circuit to do put everything on hold right pending the disposition of this appeal which says there's at least some interest in what's going on. But also, we've talked about what happened in the other case that's being argued on Tuesday, um, the case of Mary Spears and Rosa Eliadis, um, two of the civilian lawyers who sought to be released by um, Chief Defense Counsel General Baker, um, and you know, over whom there's fighting over whether they were supposed to be able to be released and what's their cause and who decides that question. Um, there was this remarkable order the D.C. Circuit issued in that case, right, where they mm-hmm. wanted plenty of material that had nothing to do with the question of whether they should have been allowed to intervene in the appeal in the CMCR. Mm. Um, and, the, and that basically sort of the government's response was, oh, never mind, we no longer oppose their intervention in the CMCR. I had taken that order as the D.C. Circuit saying, you know, we're smelling something here. And we don't know what it is, but you know, it's we're 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 starting. We're, you know, not every panel's the same, but we're starting to think it's time for us to find out. Mm. Yeah, I, I think so. I even think the uh, Kali Sheikh Mohammed, right, the alleged yeah. mastermind of the September 11th attacks, um, you know, went before the DC Circuit last summer, right, on the Solomon recusal, on on right to recuse uh, one of the CMCR judges, and on you know, I mean, on a fairly formal technical ground actually, because um, Solomon had. I think referred to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed as the plotter of 9/11, not the alleged plotter. Right, so it was a fairly subtle distinction that that case ultimately went down on. But again, on a matter of you know judicial recusal, judicial conduct, the credibility of the system. Uh, Judge Griffith was on that panel, um, and they unanimously decided that, that it was it was appropriate in that circumstance for the circuit to intervene. So, um, you know, I. You know, I, I think you might be right. You know, I think maybe the high what we'll look back and see twenty. Uh, I guess the decision in twenty sixteen is the high watermark of judicial deference from the D.C. Circuit. Uh, but we'll find out. I right. think in, in 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 due course. So the so just really quickly because I, I want I want to make sure we get this out there. I mean, so the, the so the actual issue that's being argued in the other case next week, um, right, is the is the merits of the de, uh, uh, excusing issue, mm-hmm. right? That is to say, who was the decider? When it came to excusing um, uh, Spears and Eliadis, was it in fact General Baker, or did it have to be as Judge Spath ruled, and then held General Baker in contempt for Judge Spath? So I've not been following this one. Uh, did the government argue this is moot at this point? Not yet. Um, so the, does that it, surprise you? I, I mean, so the government. Well, so so the has the rule change gone into effect yet? Uh, not yet. No. So the there. So what's interesting is the government is the, the relevant rule is Rule Five Hundred Five of the Rules for Military Commissions, um, and the whole fight is over whether Rule Five Hundred Five gives the authority to the judge or. Um, right. or, the, or the Chief Defense Counsel, the government's in the process of amending Rule 505 to make clear that it's the judge's call, mm-hmm. right? Um, which, if I were the government, I might have waited until after this appeal was over to sort of drive home the point that it's not clear in the rules that exist today. Right. But leaving that aside. <laughs> um, so it could be moot 
if Michelle wins. Um, mm. Because one of, presumably, if Michelle convinces the D.C. Circuit to wipe out most uh, of Judge Spatz's rulings, one of the rulings that would, that would fall with that is Judge Spatz's ruling that he, not Colonel Baker, had the authority to excuse these lawyers. Mm-hmm. Um, but, right, if, if Michelle doesn't necessarily get all the relief he's seeking, it's, it's still a live issue. Mm. Um, and so we mentioned Judge Griffith. We should say, I mean, Judge Griffith is perhaps the, you know, the hardest judge for you on that. I mean, the, oh, yeah. the panel is a good panel for the petitioners. I mean, it's judges, what, Rogers, Rogers Tatel, and Tatel. Griffith. Mm. Yeah, and, the, you know, all three judges who, I, who have been around the block in Guantanamo yes. cases yep. far more than once. Um, you know, that, which helps. I mean, there's, when you, if you came to this fresh, I can't even imagine trying to come yep. to this fresh and trying to get your arms around uh, the different iterations yep. of the case and what all has happened and how they all relate to one another. That's why you should listen to the National Security Law Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so, okay, so, so last question I think, and then we should turn to, we have a couple other things we want to flag, and then we want yeah, to, yeah. Michelle has, has perhaps the most frivolous, frivolity topic we've ever had on this podcast. Um, that is saying something. So what, where do we go from here? I mean, so, so let's imagine that things go well for you next week, that the D.C. Circuit rules for you and says, yeah, we've got to start over in Al-Nashiri with judge number three, mm. um, right? Um, what, you know, do, do you think we will, we will have learned the right lessons from this episode? Do you think, you know, we're just going to be back in two years in Al-Nashiri six um, you know, the undiscovered country, um, talking about sort of some new issue that has come up in the military commissions? Um, so the optimist uh, in me wants to say that a fresh start will be that fresh start and that the, you know, the, whether or not it's the Office of Chief Prosecutor or, um, you know, the MCTG, the Military Commission Trial Judiciary, the Community Authority, all the institutional actors will take this as the wake-up call to say, look, we just have to do this by the book, and we have to turn square corners like we would in any other court. We can't be as sloppy about this stuff, whether or not judicial ethics or all the other issues that have plagued this case over so long. Um, so that's the optimist in me that you you would have that, um, you know, and and maybe a, a pretty I think good hard look at the Al Nashiri case um, to begin with. And I and I think it's in, at least interesting to point out that two weeks ago uh, they killed the the mastermind of the coal bombing mm-hmm. uh, for the fourth time. That I'm aware of, uh, and the president. <laughs> there have been a lot yeah, of masterminds. There have been a lot of masterminds of the coal bombing, and when Al Nashiri is being accused, um, unfairly sparse and in questionable evidence, I'll say that much, of being the mastermind of the coal bombing, um, you know, hopefully cooler heads will at least prevail in giving the case a good hard look in determining whether or not this is the case that, that at a minimum, they want to take to, you know, for a, 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 as a death penalty case, um, and to try and paint him as the mastermind. Um, but, but the, the pessimist, uh, the trained pessimist in me, uh, worries that, you know, I mean, the government is going to, as I said at the very beginning, make the same mistakes over and over again, because that's certainly been a pattern. And I think if they keep it in Guantanamo, keep it in the military commissions, I think there's a lot of risk of that, because the people making those decisions are going to forget uh, all the problems that were created, uh, you know, in Al-Nashiri's 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Is there any chance we're ever going to move them, though? We had eight years under Barack Obama, and the, the administration was supportive of rather than hostile to the military commission process. If it didn't happen then, it's obviously not going to happen the next two years. Mm. Is there any reason to think it'll happen if the next president's a Democrat? 
Um, you, you mean that's a political question? I would have predicted many things that didn't happen, and and would not have predicted many things that did. Um, but I think any reasonable prosecutor, you know, if I'm just a, look, if I'm just the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, and we have this indictment against Al Nasheri that's been pending since 2003, oh, yeah. you know, I mean, I would I would certainly make the case, if only to have a pelt on the wall, that we're ready and raring to go, and we can do this case. Well, as we demonstrate on this show, where one of our recurring features is a National Security Division. Roundup, where we track developments in the prosecutions of terrorism-related cases, I mean, it's just one victory after another, one success after another, and it's been that way for 17 years. Absolutely. And it, it was like that before, but it's very much been that way since. So bef- since Michelle's here, can we ask quickly about the, the unlawful influence ruling? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's not your case, but it is big <laughs> news, and, and I think it w- we would be covering it anyway in a regular... Yeah, yeah. So we previously on prior episodes had talked about, you're talking about the, the Harvey ruling. Harvey. Hurricane Harvey. Um, <laughs> you, you said it, not me. <laughs> Hurricane Harvey. Uh, so uh, it turns out, that, at least for now, the, the answer is that removal of the convening authority, Harvey Rishkoff and Gary Brown, his, his, I guess that was bundled up in that same ruling, was. Uh, did not constitute unlawful command influence. Um, surprised? Are you surprised? No. I mean, like, listen, if, if the question is ever, are you surprised that a military commission ruling went against the defendants, right? My answer is never yes. Um, yeah, right. right. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the first rule of Indian law cases in the Supreme Court, the Indian always loses. Um, is that? That's, that's how my, 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 my dear friend and, co- and former colleague, Ezra Rosser, who teaches Indian right, law right, right. At, um, at, at American University of Washington College of Law. That's his, right, that's his shtick. Um, I, I'm not surprised. I, I'm a little bit sort of, th- there is a, a suspension of disbelief, I think, one has to engage in when one reads Perella's recitation of the facts. And then, you know, sort of jumps to the conclusion that the defendants haven't come close to carrying their burden. Um, and he says beyond reasonable doubt, right? Which to me is like, you don't need to say beyond reasonable doubt, dude. Like that's throwing, that's, that's, that's holding yourself to a higher standard. Um, part of it is like, they're still stuck on this whole, like he ordered, you know, satellite images, right? Which I just, that is not a serious offense. Like, even if it was unauthorized, even if he was speaking out of school, even if he was like, that would not, I mean, you know, so, so. You can read the rule in one of two ways, right? One way is to say there's other stuff going on here that had nothing to do with the 9-11 defendants and had everything to do with interpersonal relationships, mm-hmm. um, which, is a, which, as we talked about, there's yeah. always an interesting possibility here. But you could also read it as, you know, this is such an obvious pretext for a decision that was all about concerns that Harvey was going to reach a result in the 9-11 case and reach an accommodation in the 9-11 case that, sec- that, that Attorney General Sessions didn't want him to reach. Hmm. And that's where, that's, that smacks to me more like UI. Yeah, I think that one of the interesting, very subtle points um, in Perella's decision is how much he almost takes for granted, without even saying it, that, oh, of course Attorney General Sessions uh, was commenting on the decision and had an opinion and therefore was a crucial player, right? That was actually a pretty contested issue uh, in the context of the UI motion, that, that whether or not what Sessions did was even you know, inappropriate to begin with. Right. And, and Perella certainly does seem to take the view of the convening authority as a much more subordinate actor than I think Rishikoff at least viewed himself as um, under the, you know, whether it's for the UI provisions or just sort of the tradition of how convening authorities have been in the military commission's uh, system. So um, that, that to me was the most striking thing was that it was this view of the convening authority as, yes, just the agent of big G government. Um, 
And I don't know that it's actually going to help just to bring it everything back down the Shiri because everything comes back down the Shiri. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think that cuts pretty hard against uh, some of the arguments the government has made in the D.C. Circuit because one of the big arguments the government has tried to make in the D.C. Circuit is that, oh, the military commissions are this Department of Defense thing that's entirely separate and sealed off. And, you know, the attorney general, you know, he was the one who appointed uh, uh, Spath to be an immigration right. judge. Uh, and attorney general has nothing to do with the military commission judge or military commissions issues where at the same time, uh, the attorney general was the one scuttling plea negotiations in uh, the 9-11 case and in, and in Nishiri's case. I know that's been reported, so I can, I can confirm that. All right. So you want to do our quick uh, rest of the world roundup? Yeah, yeah. I wanted to come back to the topic of national emergencies because, oh, of course, that's been filling the headlines with uh, presidentially instigated speculation and uh, Senate-encouraged speculation, you know, Senator Graham encouraging the president to pull the trigger on this. Can we, just not but, talk, can we, can we have a rule that we just don't talk, talk about, about Senator Lindsey Graham, Graham on this podcast? Well, uh, he's uh, he keeps showing up in these stories. Now he's saying, actually, President... Sign a bill for at least three weeks of reopening the government. Oh, and, we're back to that now. Yeah, yeah, and, and if they can't, and then try to negotiate it before you do the emergency. Does, does he have trouble remembering all of his positions? I just, I, I worry about him sometimes. I, I mean, I, look, I, I think people when they're in, in Congress are going to alter their positions as they move along, as the circumstances develop. But yeah. what I wanted to come back to, la- so if you're interested in this topic and didn't hear us last week, Steve and I did a fairly in- in-depth uh, initial treatment of the basic idea of the National Emergencies Act and how it acts as a as a general, uh, it supplies the power that activates this uh, slate of pre-delegated authorities that Congress has given to the president that lie about not yet activated, but once he issues the national emergency, then he can turn to those statutes. And we introduced the basic way this this proposed idea would work. The reason I want to come back to it now is what we didn't do then, but now we've had the time to do in more detail, is to really dig into the details of precisely what the two most relevant, seemingly relevant uh, emergency power pre-delegation statutes are in terms of what exactly you can spend the money on. So we primarily talked last week about uh, 10 U.S. Code 2808. That's the one that's gotten the most attention. And as we noted, if the president declares a national emergency, not just in general, but one for which the use of the armed forces is, quote, required, then this allows the president to reprogram or redirect otherwise unobligated funds towards otherwise unauthorized uh, military construction projects. We didn't say them, but it really is important to dig into this. Um, Military construction has a binding statutory definition. So 10 U.S. Code 2801. uh, That old chestnut. That old chestnut uh, says exactly what military construction can be. And it's somewhat specific. Um, There there are basically three different parts. One involves access roads to military facilities. We can leave that aside. Um, The heart of it is construction, improvements on real estate, on military facilities. Now, that's actually very little use here to what President Trump is proposing to do, because for the most part, the wall would not involve the land of military facilities. I looked this up. Yes. There's exactly one military base that Um, abuts the U.S.-Mexico border. I'm guessing it has a wall, a reinforced structure of some kind already. Well, because don't you know rich people build walls around their houses? Oh, sorry, uh, too soon. So you're, you're losing Non-sequitur. me. Non-sequitur. Uh, well, but, but you agree, right? There's bound yeah, to be yeah, a wall yeah, already yeah, on it. Yeah, yeah. um, but there is there is a further part but that There's would, bound to be a wall for reasons having nothing to do with the fact that it's on an international border. There'll be a wall no matter what. Right. There'll be, yeah, these... Exactly. It's like the minefield outside Guantanamo that I learned about from Bad Boys too. You didn't know that from... Uh, wasn't that in uh, A Few Good Men? The minefield? No, no, that's the, rif- that's the, the, the rifle security company. Right? Yeah, the, yeah. The fire... The, the, anyway. 
All right. So uh, the definition in 2801 does not just refer to the access road and to military construction projects on military facilities. It also refers to the acquisition of land. So it does have that, that clause, which would be relevant if it's the case that that can be used to fund eminent domain land purchases, which is a big part of the, of the ballgame here. Um, now, turning to the other statute, which might be invoked, 33 U.S. Code 2293, um, this one is... It, on close read, it's, it's slightly more appealing for the administration insofar as they're worried about being judicially second-guessed on the proposition that it's not just a national emergency, but one for which the armed forces, the use of the armed forces is required. Because unlike uh, the first one I just mentioned, this one has language that refers to uh, the use of the military being either, quote, required or may be required. Right. So for whatever reason, they added in this uh, this sort of contingent expander clause. And I think you combine that with the usual principles of judicial deference on these sorts of judgments. And that makes uh, 33 U.S. Code 2293 um, a really hard one at on that question for a court to second guess. So then the issue becomes, all right, well, what do you get for that? Where can you spend that money? This is Army Civil Works uh, Project money. Um, and it can be spent on three categories. So again, you have three categories. Um, one is military construction, which we just talked about. You, that gets you no further than land purchases. Another is civil defense projects essential to national defense. Now, you might think, well, surely that applies based on the Trump theory that this is all about national defense by securing the border. Um, you know, it's interesting. Civil defense has a somewhat particular uh, usage and meaning through practice. I've not yet determined if there's an actual statutory definition of it that's narrow, but a lot of the traditional usage and conventional understanding of that is relatively narrow and wouldn't necessarily encompass the uh, the generalized security benefits of securing the border, although that obviously can be debated. Um, so there's some possibility of building under that heading, but I think that could be contested. Um, lastly, there's, quote, authorized civil works. And there you don't have to fit it into the uh, conceptual category of civil defense as such. So what counts as authorized civil works? Well, that obviously entails that there's some statutory authorization for the construction already. And what you're really doing is pouring more money or new money into it. Right. And this raises the question, is any of this stuff actually uh, authorized? And I've seen, it's interesting, there's a lot of debate about this, but it actually looks to me like this probably is authorized under the old Secure Fences Act, the Section 102B1A of IIRIRA. Um, I won't try to spell that all out, but this this has been on the books for a while. This is where the fence building that's been going on all these years has, has largely been driven. DHS. And how's is, that going? Well, they've built a lot a lot of it, but not as much as they said they're going to. Partly, uh, I say, partly because it's tied up in litigation over, over eminent domain. Exactly. Absolutely. Uh, the secretary. I'm quoting from that statute. The secretary of Homeland Security shall construct reinforced fencing along not less than 700 miles of the southwest border. Um, and you'll find that if you want to find the codified version, I believe it's in the notes to 8 U.S. Code 1102. Huh. Um, so it's interesting. DHS, under that language, arguably has authority to go beyond yeah. the 700-mile target. There's been some litigation where people try to argue that's the cap, yep. like you can't go beyond that. The language says, you know, I, th I think it's pretty clear, uh, not less than. So you can go higher. I, I think you could argue that's authorization. The only interesting question to me is, can you cross those two authorities then? Can you match 33 U.S. Code 2293? Exactly. And, and, and divert that military spending to support a DHS authority. Sounds like something you could gum things up in litigation with for quite a while. Well, yeah. And I think, I mean, I think what we've seen since we recorded last week is that 
we got to this like really. I mean, I thought we were getting to a point where he was going to you know jump the national emergency shark, um, and the president has now backed away. I, I think it's you know I, I don't think it's because they've decided that the legal arguments are non-starters. Um, I think it's because they've they've realized that they're going to get so much political pushback even from within their own party. Um, that is right. not worth it. Right. Well, I think that's right. I think that a big moment was when Senator Rubio, among others, pointed out that this is a, a two-edged sword, and if if he makes this argument, then a you know a president fill in the blank, a Democratic president in the future might declare, say, climate change a national emergency, well, and therefore we're going to we're going to divert spending towards green spending projects. So, so I just want to say, but but this is where I think the conversation has gotten off the rails, right? Because that's what you just said is right. But the people are like you know, future Democratic president will use a national emergency to come take all your guns. Right? No, you need the residual statutory authority. Absolutely. Well, that's why the the come take your guns uh, scary hypothetical is a silly one. The spin to construct things is is precisely the point. Build solar panels on every government property in the country. Yeah, and it's just a reminder look, there. Some I'm, I'm reluctant to use the word conservatives here because it's so debatable now what exactly that's <laughs> encompassing. Some Republicans who retain the traditional uh, anxiety about undue central government power um, are rightly seeing this as one of many moves in which you're creating a really dangerous precedent, not to mention using it in a dumb way right in this instance. Some but even are. if you but even if you like this particular instance, you see that it could be used in a bad way in the future by okay. your own lights. But- there are others for whom concern about overweening central power or overweening government power, period, uh, that's not actually motivating them. So I just want to say, I mean, I, just just because I, I, I like dunking on, on these people. Um, so Mark Meadows is a conservative Republican from the 11th North Carolina district and a self-professed member of the Freedom Caucus. Um, the Freedom Caucus, which near as I understand, is a very libertarian wing of the Republicans in, in Congress. In theory. In theory. So this is what Mark Meadows tweeted over the weekend. Democrats continue to refuse to negotiate in good faith or appropriate any money for border barriers. If they won't compromise, POTUS should use asset forfeiture money or other discretionary fees to start construction, right, not said, by taking people's property. If not, you should declare a national emergency. It's time. Like, where are where are the principles in this conversation? So well, right, and so, so to let's, your, but, let's take asset forfeiture money, which, by the way, is a you know horrifying you know libertarian problem, um, and let's take people's property so we can build this Fakakta wall. So the uh, the asset forfeiture angle is interesting that people are now starting to talk about these other theories, which highlights this idea that indeed the national emergency pathway is starting to look a little too scary to touch, perhaps. And also, I should mention, you know, when when people like Mac Thornberry, um, formerly the the House Armed Services Committee chairman, now ranking member, I think, um, are saying, do not take money from DOD-funded projects that we plan to have spent on certain things. There's a real, there's a real national security cost to, re- to diverting those things. So I, I think all these things kind of combine to explain why we haven't yet seen Trump pull the trigger on this. But I don't think he's got an obvious other way out. And I will not be surprised if in the end, he decides to show that he's willing to do this and it won't actually get the wall built, of course. Everything will be gummed up in litigation. But I won't be surprised at all if sometime in the next couple of weeks, especially as TSA problems mount I, I think travel. So TSA, I think TSA is, is where the rubber's going to hit well, the road. That's where everyone else who's not employed by the government direct, right. or otherwise directly affected yeah. because of some benefit they're no longer receiving. I think that's where a lot of just... Most uh, visible. Yeah. A lot of people who otherwise are insulated from all this are going to feel the pinch. And many of whom vote for Republicans. Well, and look, if, when it starts happening in members and staffers and Others in Washington can't get out, can't get back in. Right. When it's not snow-related, it's snow-related <laughs> today, but it'll be others. Sorry, Brian. Yeah. Anyways, uh, I think we beat that into the ground. Uh, my prediction then is 
uh, that at some point you, you will get the National Emergency Declaration and it'll invoke the, the Title 10 authority to try to, f- to ostensibly fund eminent domain and the Title 33 authority to try to build uh, authorized civil works on top of that. So we have to get to frivolity, but the one other thing I just want to throw out there is the other thread that got raised last week, I think it was a trial balloon, was going through the Stafford Act. Um, right, the Stafford Act, which is the sort of principal statutory authority for disaster relief and emergency assistance after natural or man-made disasters. Yeah. And the thing that, that I, sounds like baloney to well, me. Well, so and Trump even tweeted about taking disaster funds away from California and Florida um, and Texas. Now, oh yeah, oh now, my god. Now, leaving aside the the political backlash that would engender, um, the Stafford Act actually is far more, I think, specific. Um, in how a disaster is defined, oh, yeah. in what you can use funds for. So I just never thought that was yeah, plausible. I, well, and of course, the fact that the president, this president tweeted about it doesn't mean anyone's, uh, anyone who's really looked at this has Someone thought Someone on Fox News said something, therefore. Well, there you go. All right. Um, are we out of substance? Yes. This has all been way too serious. Yes. Can we lighten Frivality. it up a bit? Um, so, Michelle, you actually came to us with a frivolity topic. Well, a present. Actually, apparently, oh, a present. Presents for both of you. Ah, yes. sweet. So, I, after listening to your podcast last week, and uh, you got some Essa bagels, I brought you some of Lenny's bagels. Lenny! Oh. Le- I'm going to make a, a strong, finest. strong claim for the Upper Look West Side's finest. Yes. Okay, I am, uh, yeah. listeners, dear listeners, we are holding uh, airtight bag Ziplocs shut with, looks like, a nice medley of different bagels. A medley of different bagels, indeed. Oh, this is fantastic. This is this is what we need for podcast guests, to bring us stuff. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. You're, okay, you're more than welcome. This is fantastic. But, but you are you are trying to sort of um, um, soften us up for a extraordinarily uh, 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 controversial claim that you want to. Yes. That, that's true, and that, and that, so I, the reason I made sure to seal to butter them, us up. I made I made sure to it's seal working. them was that you could have those bagels completely fresh, and they'd be delicious. Lenny's bagels is probably the best bagels on the Upper West Side, and my wife warned me against saying that because I'm going to have Columbia students picketing me over my slight of absolute bagels. Would you have? But said Lenny's that bagels you, are just much would better. You have I'm said sorry. that before the H and H location on 84th Street closed. Uh, I would, I would, because, because oh, yes, because Lenny's Bagels, uh, it was founded something like a hundred years ago, you know, sort of a traditional, you know, kosher bagel shop is now owned by two Korean immigrants and staffed entirely by Latino immigrants. And so you can't get more Upper West Side awesome. than a bagel shop like Lenny's Bagels. And the bagels are delicious. But I'm going to defend the toasting of bagels. I just like a toasty bagel. It's a nice, like, charred. I would think people from Texas especially would appreciate sort well, of the blackened. Exactly. So I'm totally down with that. Okay. Uh, but, but Steve's breaking out in a sweat here. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm not. So, so listen, I, I, as I said last week, and I hope I was clear, I have no aversion to and often understand the importance of declaring a bagel emergency um, and using the toaster um, when, when the bagel has, has become somewhat perhaps stale um, and is no longer fresh. Does it have to be stale or is it enough that it's no longer warm? So I think a good, Ooh, that's a good this, this I think is a yeah. difference between a, a proper New York bagel and, a, and, a, and an imposter. Yeah. A proper New York bagel is still excellent as long as it is fresh, even if it has somehow made its way to room temperature, which, mm. by the way, is a sin on the part of whoever's eating it. Um, a imposter bagel might actually be halfway decent, fresh, and warm, but as soon as it reaches room temperature, it becomes less edible. That's how you can tell the difference, that is dear listeners. So my position is that... Imposter bagels, of course, toasting them makes sense. But a fresh New York bagel, by toasting it, it's like putting ketchup on a hot dog. 
right? I mean, if I you love want putting it, ketchup on hot dogs. If you want it, if you want it, if you want it, you ketchup. You know, why waste a hot dog? Like, I mean, the you know the the thing is the hot dog, not the ketchup. I know, but what if you're what if you're like putting something on the bagel, right? Don't you want that t- the toasting? The, 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 once the you perfect little punch of the cream right, cheese the cr- on the right, yeah. exactly. You're creating a nice firm barrier, a wall, uh, a, a fence, wall. <laughs> a steel <laughs> fence, wall, if you will, between, right, between the topping the bagel. and the rest of the bagel. So, <laughs> so, 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 as I think I said last week, my I am I am jaded in my views by my my old standby order. Which was so the original essay bagel is on the same block as my middle school, um, and I would I would walk into there and I would get a a cinnamon a, a fresh cinnamon raisin bagel with butter, and the thing about not toasting it is that the butter would seep all the way into the bagel, <laughs> and so every little square inch of bagel the proper bagel sponge it would it would, be, it would sponge the butter now yeah. cream cheese is different so so part of this also may boil down to whether you are a butter on your bagel or cream cheese person. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, but but or, also to yeah. say, you know, this is this is how seriously New Yorkers take their bagels, right? It is. Whereas yeah. you know, a- anywhere else, it's like you know, is that bagel edible? Okay, good. But it's a good bagel. It's, it's not. It's not even a bagel. It's just a hard roll. It's, it's a hard roll, and yeah. it's and often it's because people don't know they haven't had the real thing. They right. Look, yeah, I think yeah. we have similar views here about the tortillas, right, and tacos, mm-hmm. and you've you've got situations where someone say like, oh, that's a really good tortilla, a really good taco, and it's clearly just a reheated, maybe a store bought right. one. It's not fresh. Yeah. A really fresh, straight off. Show the me press. where you're making it in your store. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. If you've got that, so I should stone. say after last week's episode. Um, I got an anonymous uh, direct message on Twitter from a listener. Uh, uh, <laughs> Always the beginning of an important story. <laughs> well, um, from a listener who who said who said I probably haven't in my rant about the the dearth of good bagels in Austin. Who said oh, yeah? I probably oh, haven't say. tried Rosen's bagels yet. Rosen's? And says they are fantastic. I had never heard of Rosen's okay. bagels, so where I have to it? go. Where is it? This is a good question. Oh, you're like looking up as we go. I'm looking up. I, yeah. mean, I don't prep. Um, <laughs> right. Yes. Right. So Rosen's, where are you, Rosen's bagel? All right. Anyway, so we will make a point of awesome we will get people. it, but we will report back next week on hey, whether that be Rosen's our first sponsor. Wait, is, I would is, try was, the bagels first. Was it I, I would definitely try Rosen's? the bagels. First. Oh, find us at our Inku Baker, which is nice. at the Wright Brothers Brew and Brew on San Mar- five hundred San Marcos. So okay. beer and bagels. That is I like am Austin in, officially heaven. intrigued. Yeah. I mean, so the the way I knew the story I tell people about how I knew Austin was my kind of town was shortly after I moved here two and a half years ago. Um, my wife and I went to Shake Shack um, mm. for lunch, and there was a flyer about a running club um, that met at Shake Shack. Right? Yeah. And I was like, this is my, people run and then they eat burgers. Oh, absolutely. This is my kind of town. No, <laughs> so I think, you know, people have noticed, we, we don't do sponsors. We don't try to, you know, generate Except revenue. for the Robert Strauss Center. Well, right. It's a UT sponsored deal. And, uh, but a lot of, most, most shows like this have sponsors. But if there's some listener out there who runs a, uh, a place that has both awesome, legit bagels and a good IPA, I'd be willing to make an exception <laughs> as long as we're paid in kind. So I feel like, I mean, is, it, is it Chico's Bail Bonds that sponsors the Bad News Bears? Right? <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Like, I feel like, like we've got to be a little careful yeah. here about, if, you know, who, if, from whom if we, we ever If we ever do take sponsorship, I think it's going to be one of those deals where we really think about, like, do we really endorse that product? product? I mean, you know, Eastsiders? Yeah, you could you'd be a great spokesperson for Eastsiders. Yeah, I and I, I could do Austin Beer Works. I think that go. would reflect our actual consumption habits. All right, so really quickly because you know it is it is playoff football time, right? Um, and I don't want to jinx the as yet undefeated Michigan basketball team, which is the only good thing that's happened in my sports life all year. Um, so the uh, uh, the seat chalk we had chalk in the divisional round of the playoffs, right? The top four seeds advancing. 
Yeah, what'd you think of uh, the Cowboys and Rams? Did you watch any of that? I watched as much of it as having the, two children would allow me the to. The Rams offensive line is really yeah. something. Yes. That's really something. I'm not actually, not actually 100% sure how good both running backs are, though. Obviously, Todd Gurley is amazing. Um, too bad for the Cowboys. Once again, the Cowboys do not advance to the NFC Championship. Uh, as someone who grew up with Boo-hoo. Tom Landry and, womp, then, womp. and then later the Troy Aikman, Michael Irvin, Evan Smith, so it hurts. So, so it Car- continues to hurt. Karen said to me right before the weekend started. Karen said, "Wouldn't it be really fun if the NFC Championship game was Cowboys Eagles?" And I said, "If by really fun you'd mean I want to like bang myself into <laughs> bang my head in the wall for four hours." You're such a Giants fan. That's got to be hard. Well, yeah. I mean, who would I root for? Like you know the the the, the singularity, right, a the, tie, the AFC. Uh, yeah. Well, I ever so this brings me to. I, and I'm not just saying this because Brian Miser is sitting across from me, but I am I am all in on on this being the Chiefs' year, and and this of course means that the Patriots will walk into Arrowhead and beat them next weekend. But um, I am pulling hard for for a rematch of the insanity that was that 54-51 Monday night game, and I actually think we might be heading toward it. I think we might be looking at. Rams Chiefs Part Two. We can pull a good Texas connection in there with Pat Mahomes, of course, being the the Texas Tech and a Mets uh, connection, because Patrick Mahomes' father, Pat Mahomes, pitched for the Mets for many years. That's oh, I never made that yeah. connection. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I think you got a lot of uh, love for the Chiefs uh, as, as sort of in this table. Texas, Texas in general, I think has sort of there's some amount of interest in the Chiefs, like the Saints. These are nearby uh, supportable teams when our teams are out, and with the Texans having laid a huge egg in the first round, oh, yeah. and the Cowboys having you know met more than their match the other day, I think I can I could be down with a Saints. Chiefs Super Bowl. I think everybody would enjoy that. <laughs> Drew Brees and Pat Mahomes. That would be really something. I, I think. Listen, I think the Chiefs versus either of the NFC teams yeah. would be a Super Bowl I'd be interested in. The Super Bowl I am not interested in is any Super Bowl with the Patriots in it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm with you on that. By the way, so yesterday, uh, Drew Brees in the Drew Saints Brees. and and the Eagles with Nick Foles, the Westlake High School Bowl, the Westlake High School Bowl. Once again, awesome uh, attention being paid to uh, one of our great local high schools. Nick <laughs> Foles, they were widely saying, is not going to be an Eagle again next year. But where would he go? What do you guys think, Brian? You got an opinion on that? Who could use Nick Foles, or is he sort of I, a, a, I a Philadelphia of, specific? So, so I could think of a team that that plays. Oh, I don't know, one state <laughs> over, maybe a couple hour drive from the Eagles. Um, are you done with Team Eli? So I, you know, I am the I love Eli Manning, but uh, you know something's not working there, and I just feel like if you know Eli, listen, Eli does not have more than one year left in him if he even has one year left in him, right? So why not go get Nick Foles? I mean. I, that's that's me. I, I think the Redskins are in need of a quarterback. Too. The Redskins are in, well. The Redskins are in need of you know a lot of things. Yes. Yeah, they are. Um, all right. Well, so on that. Ha- so since I predicted it, the 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 opposite will happen because that's how my sports questions yeah. go. <laughs> my I am I am pretty accurate whenever it's the Longhorns. You'll notice I'll I'll make these optimistic guesses and uh, that works out. But my that does other not always work my, out. Uh, mostly uh, the I I called the Sugar Bowl. Great, you got one game. One if, I, game. if I can have one game, that is the one I would take. I would have taken the Big 12 championship game myself. but uh, I, I'm actually pretty happy with how that, that thing worked out. So I'll just say thank you, Michelle Bryan, for coming. Yeah, thank, thank you Michelle, for having for, us. For, yeah. for your, your insights. Um, listeners, we will be back next week with a, a full batch of other related national security news. And Bobby, I think the semester starts next mm, Tuesday. Yeah. I will have taught a class when next we record a podcast, which I haven't done in a while. Yeah, me too. I will have had day one of intelligence law, in which we will begin right off the bat diving directly into the uh, early 20th century history of constitutional statutory developments on collection inside the United States. So my so day one in federal courts is I give them the crazy 2012 
Fourth Circuit en banc decision in the Al Shamari torture case. <laughs> you trying to like get people to drop? Is that well, the... I'm basically so I'm, it's it's a case where the en banc court is fighting about interlocutory appellate jurisdiction, but what they're really fighting about is the role of the federal courts in adjudicating torture claims, and so it's like an interesting chance to see how. Pure, perfectly nerdy, absurdly technical jurisdictional doctrines are actually masked for much deeper debates about the role of federal courts. That should go in our Twitter handle. That's a lot of words. <laughs> um, all right. Anyway, so uh, Michelle Parody is on Twitter at MD Parody. That's right. Um, right. Bobby Chesney is on Twitter too. So I hear it at Bobby Chesney. That's the word. Uh, I am at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, I'm out of things to say. So stay safe out there. Adios.